0: Hey, it's Max. Quick
1: word from our friends at Squarespace before we start the show. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello! Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with uh, just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hey, Max. Uh, So, on the show this week, uh, I talked to Wesley Morris. Wesley Morris is the uh, cultural critic at large, I believe is his title, at the New York Times. And I have a couple caveats about this episode. Let's hear them. I have some disclosures. Um, One one disclosure is that Wesley has been on the show before. He was on uh, in the summer of 2014. Aaron interviewed him. It's uh, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Great,
2: great, great, Joe.
1: It is fantastic. It is the life and times of Wesley Morris. And if you do not know the life and times of Wesley Morris, I really recommend that you go and listen to that episode. It's in the show notes. That's one caveat. Second caveat is um, I spend a lot of time with Wesley these days. I am uh, producing this podcast he's doing for the New York Times with Jenna Wortham. It's called Still Processing. So there's all kinds of conflicts of interest here. Like I'm working with this guy, this guy in another capacity. And uh, I will also say uh, you should listen to the show. I think the show is good.
2: It's a good show. You... I'll I could I'll, I'll plug the show because I don't work on that show. It's a great show. Okay. Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris are uh, quite a pair. Yeah, it is very fun. Two of the smartest people in culture, I would say, that are working today.
1: Yes, that I would agree with that. And uh, all I do is just like really sit there and like press record. But I do that. And so you should know, uh, I'm working on this thing with Wesley. And then the third caveat is um, Wesley wrote this piece last week. It's called Last Taboo. It ran in the New York Times magazine. He'd been working on it for almost a year. i had been talking to him about it off and on. uh, And it's about America's relationship with the black penis. And um, I read it and I just think it's exceptional and that's really all we talked about in this episode was just, uh, that essay. And the last caveat is we really just started talking like the mics were on and we just started talking. So it just, it's one of those ones where it just picks up right in the, uh, middle there.
2: Those, those sound like good setups for someone to go listen to this episode. <laughs> I, I will that... say that when, uh, when ta pops up on Twitter and says, this is the best essay you'll read all year. It's a pretty safe essay to do a whole episode on.
1: It's amazing, and and uh, as you will hear, Evan, what uh, I found so striking about it is, um, it's really personal. It is one of the most personal things I've ever read in the New York Times, and um, I asked Wesley about that like maybe thirty different times. <laughs> All
2: right, I can't wait to hear it. Well, I have an uh, I have a separate plug for myself. Plug away, a rare plug. Uh, I am going to be doing an event for those of you in New York City. I will be doing an event at the Half King uh, Monday, November 7th, which is the eve of the election, which is appropriately about faking your own death. Uh, Elizabeth Greenwood wrote a book called playing dead. Uh, it's all about faking your own death. It's a real fascination of mine and has been for a long time. And so, uh, we're doing things together at the half King that night. So if you're thinking about the possibilities of faking your own death, given any certain election outcome, uh, you should come check it out if you're in New York city.
1: I'm so glad that you're, uh, you're alive. You're fully alive. I can attest to you. you. Right now, you are currently fully alive. Well,
2: we'll see what happens next <laughs> week. Uh, what about sponsors, Max?
1: Uh, this week, our friends at MailChimp are making the show possible, as they have made it possible for so long. These people at MailChimp are... What's the word? What's the, Indispensable. That is the word I was looking for. They are indispensable to us. MailChimp is the best way to send an email newsletter. Eight million businesses use it. Long Form does. Atavis does. One more fun piece of news. Uh, I have it on high authority that Aaron Lammer is headed back home. We might actually be in a studio with him again. I'll
2: believe it when I see it. (laughs) Now here's Max with Wesley Morris.
3: I don't want white people to read this story and think that I have a problem with white people, which so far hasn't happened I've not read I've been told by a couple friends who've texted to not read the comments but I, I won't ever do that but and I was also concerned that this is just something that does not apply to other black men you know and that I'm making something up that doesn't really exist I know that's false and I've talked to many black men over the course of my life where this has been an issue in some way um, and then my third thing was, um, oh, it's like the other people I've slept with you know? <laughs> and I don't know what you What do you say to a guy who you've slept with who you still keep in touch with or something and who has just written this story about, it's not about his literal penis, but yes, about his literal penis, but, but, but also the, the concept of his penis. Like, what do you do with that?
1: I feel like we should uh, stop and you should explain what the story is. <laughs> uh,
3: the story is a it's a cultural history of penises in popular culture as framed through how the black penis does and does not function in popular culture. And therefore, by extension, black sexuality, black male sexuality. And mostly I, the thing that I wanted to do with this piece was to sort of say this is what the history is, but I also wanted to personalize it and say this is how the, the history feels because it's something that you carry around with you all the time as a professional critic of culture, right? Like you're always thinking. You're not always thinking about yourself when you go watch this stuff, but, I mean, what, you, what anybody is doing when they go to consume anything is having an experience between a work of art and themselves. And normally when I write, I write about the experience I had and how that thing affected me. Mm-hmm. And in this case, um, I just got tired of of going to see shit that made me feel bad. I assume on some level this has been
1: something you've been thinking about for a long time. But yes. Was there like a moment... Was there one... It was Ted 2. Ted 2.
3: It was Ted 2. Because, you know, I have no problem writing about racism in any form in popular culture. I've been doing it pretty much for as long as I've been practicing criticism. But there was something about Ted 2. It was so nasty. And it wasn't even, like, it was both nasty on purpose and by accident. Mm -hmm. Right? So... It's not really a movie about black people at all. It's just a movie about Ted, this doll, this bear, trying to, like, achieve personhood so that he can take advantage of all the benefits that one can take advantage of as a married person. But throughout the movie, there are all of these digs at black people and black anatomy and and blackness. There's a kind of... It's not even dog whistling. It is just active open disdain for black people. And it's couched through this fear of the black penis. Every time Mark Wahlberg opens his, his laptop, he's like, you know, oh, God, another black dick. Black cocks everywhere. And there's that. There's some woman who works at the grocery store where I think Ted works, and she's calling white people the N-word. It's just it just this, is this weird thing. And anyway, my, my, the, to answer your question, I left that movie... And I felt so much less than myself when I than before I, when I went in. I felt like it wanted me to not like myself, which is I've have rarely had that experience. When you like
1: walk out of that movie and you're feeling that way, like um, are feeling badly about yourself. What's the what's your process like? What like did you know in that moment? what was going on or do you need to like go home and start writing about it to understand how something makes you feel
3: Uh that's a good question because I reviewed the movie when it when it opened when I was at Grantland and um, I didn't have that much time to write I think I had a day and the challenge that you want to have is you don't want to take the bait as presented to you mm-hmm. you know you want to take the bait and you want to like chop it up and saute it and like have a nice side dish. Do you (laughs) know what I mean? Like, I can't not be mad at the thing you did. It it maddens me, right? But I'm not gonna just be like, I'm so mad. I don't think that's fun to read. Mm -hmm. The thing I wanted to do was sort of meet Seth MacFarlane at the level at which he was operating. I wanted to take him seriously as a comedian, which I would have done if his movie weren't racist anyway and i felt the only way to do that was to just explain what the movie was and like what about th- my particular experience at this particular movie was so disgusting and appalling uh that i had to i had to tell you about how awful this movie made me feel
1: and then when did you start putting that feeling in the context of
3: black this male larger, sexuality. I think it was when I was starting to see all these penises on TV. Because these things all happened within a year. I started noticing the other this generic dickness on TV, like really noticing it around that time. Ted 2 was last summer. HBO, which is like, you know, land of just,
1: <laughs> just dick central.
3: Just penises. Um I started noticing it watching a lot of HBO and then you start seeing it you start noticing it in movies and once you start to notice it you can't unnotice it. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that that these penises are erotic or anything you just notice that some boundary has been broken. Because when when we were kids the biggest deal with male nudity was Naked Dennis Franz. Right. You know? That well, was I remember like Keitel, on NYPD Blue,
1: like Harvey Keitel
3: Oh, Harvey Keitel, yeah. That
1: was like a huge deal. That lieutenant. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. W- that was like the only thing that anyone talked about about that movie. Right, right. It's like when Harvey Keitel's penis is on screen, that's like news. And now right. we're in this era where there's penis anywhere you look, right. except it's only white guys.
3: Right, right. And it's like white unaroused penis. We're still not at the point where like you could see a hard dick in something and, and have it not A problem, and I think you probably could do it. It's just like, who's the actor who'd want to do that? And you'd have to hire a stunt double. And so, we're just at this point where we're like, we're just seeing men casually, unthreateningly naked. Mm -hmm. And I was just noticing who was not afforded that same casual nudity. And I had to think about why that was, and did it really bother me? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it in the context of something like Ted 2 where you know you have Mark Wahlberg saying like th- on three different occasions ah black hawk or like there's a scene in Neighbors 2 where just for kicks I think Rose Rose Byrne says just for a laugh black hawk you you see enough of that and you just start to think well okay you already know what the deal is with your penis like I mean as a black person you just kind of know that there is you know that there's this thing people expect it to be and so I thought about like well why okay we're so far into this history of the the problem of black male sexuality Mm -hmm. that it's threatening that you know historically it was purely to keep the plantations going black men had desire more children to create more property for the slave owners. And in turn, um, that sort of dehumanized, pleasureless sex was reserved entirely for the plantation owners who, you know, they did what they wanted to do to black women and white women too. And I think the fear of, there's, there were two fears, right? There's a fear that black men will retaliate E- both during slavery and after. And there's the fear throughout the history of this country that women are just going to prefer having sex with black men because, according to the myth, their dicks are bigger and therefore more satisfying to white women. Um, you learn a lot of things about your sexuality at an early age. And, you know, I learned that, you know, your penis is a problem for white people that you can't be too openly sexual in general because that could get you in trouble because someone could misconstrue what you're doing and you know in my case I also knew I was gay so I had to deal with like okay so my dick is a problem in general and like I'm not even interested in putting my penis where it's supposed to go like this is going to be bad um, But, you know, you start thinking about these things and you want to kind of want to connect them. The thinking, I think, is part of what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm.
1: Is, like, the way the piece unravels, it almost feels like you watch Ted 2. and it, Actually, that's not, it's not totally true. Right. I was going to say, like, the piece kind of unravels and it seems like you're sort of stumbling on these new ideas. But, in fact, the piece feels, like, incredibly cohesive and, like, you've been thinking about it for years. Mm-hmm. The question I have is more like, when you walk out of Ted two and you're feeling shitty Mm -hmm. movie made you feel shitty about yourself, Mm -hmm. these thoughts that you're talking about now about like the, the way that you had been taught to think about your penis, was that conscious before you saw Ted two, or was it kind of sitting there under the surface and something kicked it up?
0: Hmm.
1: Because both of them are fascinating to me, but I don't know. I just don't understand how you do it.
3: Uh, I don't know either. I'm, I mean, I can talk about process in in a lot of different ways, but I think that the 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 which thoughts led to which thoughts, I can I don't really know, but I can tell you that the thing that really was shocking to me was so the, in the piece. There's a story that I tell about a time that I took a guy home after I met him in a bar, um, and. It was San Francisco. He was German. There was something kind of fun about all this stuff. Like, I had just moved to San Francisco. Yeah, you're 24. Yeah. And I hadn't been with very many people at this point. And so there was all there was this, like, it was just an exciting thing to do. So I was, you know, we get to my place. We're ready to go. He takes off my – he starts to do undo my pants. He doesn't get them all the way off. But, like, he, he gets in the process, and he sees my dick, and he's like – he just he, the look he gives me is the it's just so crazy because I didn't know what was wrong, right? And what was the look? It was like he just stared at it, and then but he kind of tilted his head like, like he had maybe this was the first black penis he had seen, or like maybe the second or third, and maybe the first one he'd seen it on was a guy who was like six foot eight or something and he had a proportionally large penis right so he looks at mine and it's clearly not what he what he was thinking it was and I'm like well what's the matter and he goes this is this is not what I was expecting and I just was like well I I know what you mean I'm not even going to try to unpack this so if if you're going to go you should go I didn't even have to say it cuz he was already putting his clothes back on and he was gone um and I stood there for i would say it what in reality was probably maybe 30 seconds but felt like 2 days just kind of laughing a little bit because it was just funny like what what is wrong with my dick <laughs> nothing there's nothing wrong with this there's nothing wrong with this this is great and i i just think that the myth is is steeped in like a fear of it and like also just a disinterest f- in black people as people, right? So I think this guy, I mean, I th- I thought things were fine, right? Like we had a really fine conversation at this bar. We were talking about art. And he seemed impressed by me enough to like want to come home with me. When you're 24, you don't really, I, at least I didn't have enough experiences to know, well, here's here's probably how this is going to go. And this is probably what he's thinking right now. And we're walking back to his to my place. And but I don't think he really cared that I was smart or interesting or anything. I mean, he maybe he did, but he really obviously didn't because he left. Because it was sport. It was a sport, right? I mean, things like that have happened to me often enough for me to know. Um, there's a belief, and that is entirely born of slavery, that we are. Professional fuckers, right? We just because we were, right? Like we weren't paid to do it, but it was expected. We were expected to have the sex to keep the, the the plantation going, and obviously women were expected to do that as well. But women had an additional burden, which was that they also were prey to the people to their to the masters, and so you have this complicated thing that is born entirely of trauma and pathology and abuse that just once divorced from the environment in which these, they weren't myths at the time, they were reality, they sort of become mythic and, you know, you have all this evidence that, you know, anatomically a black dick just looks different from a white dick. But it's not categorically true. I mean, I've seen lots of enormous white dicks. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I've seen lots of average black dicks, like small dicks, like, un- 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 quote, unimpressive dicks, unquote. Everybody's got everything. Everybody can have everything. There's no monopoly on huge penises that black men have. And I think it doesn't matter because there's just this belief that gets handed down, you know, across the generations and across the centuries. that This is the case. <laughs>
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for a second and uh, tell you about some sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up is Casper. Casper is the place to go if you need a mattress. They've got these obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. How do they do it? How do they keep those prices shockingly fair? They have cut Out the middleman. Casper goes directly to you, and all you'll pay is 500 bucks for a twin, 850 for a queen, 950 for a king. If you have bought a mattress recently, you know those prices are incredibly good, and the mattress is incredibly good. It combines the springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. It's an award-winning mattress that won't disappoint. Plus free shipping and returns to us and canada and and you can try casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home if you don't love it they'll pick it up and refund you everything so go to casper.com slash long form that is casper.com slash long form and you'll get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase casper.com slash long form thanks to them for sponsoring the show also sponsoring the show this week Audible. And if you are listening to this podcast, then my guess is you would enjoy the offerings at audible.com. It is the leading purveyor of audiobooks and other spoken word brilliantness in the world. They've got more than 250,000 titles, including many books by authors who have been on the show Cheryl Strade, Liz Gilbert. George Saunders, you can go and listen to these books. You don't actually have to do the work of reading, but you can listen to them. And uh it's pretty great. Plus, Audible has podcasts now. They've got all these great podcasts, uh, original stuff, good stuff that you will enjoy. So go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. You'll get a 30-day free trial. That's a good deal. Thanks, Audible. Thanks, Casper. Let's get back to Wesley. Was that story with the 24-year-old German
3: guy, was that a story that you like told people over mm-hmm. the years, thought about? It was a party story. It was definitely, I, well, no, it stopped being a party story. I told that when I was 24 or 25. And then I, I think I told it with a bunch of my college friends when we went away one weekend. And uh, nobody laughed. Like I was with a bunch of white guys telling the story, and I was like, "You guys, I got a, I got a story for y'all," and I told it with a room. My look, eight of my best friends, all of whom are straight, um, and they didn't laugh. And I thought about, I don't know why I told it because I thought it would be funny, but they were like, "Dude, that's not cool," and I didn't need them to tell me that. But I also thought it was amusing enough for me to think that it could be like a, like a cookout anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were all like, mm, that's not, that's not one guy laughed. Um, and it was more like, it was more the laughter of disbelief. Like, I can't believe somebody would do that. Who would do that? It's like, you're going to turn down sex. Cause you know, it's just <laughs> like these guys are all like, I can't, if a woman was like sane and clean, I can't think of a reason <laughs> that I would turn down sex with her. So the idea of of saying no to like a hookup yeah. was just, and for that reason was just appalling to
1: them. It's interesting that it got less funny because I think part of what I was asking was like in the piece, mm-hmm. that story a little bit comes out of nowhere. Like mm-hmm. you start a section with it. Mm-hmm. And you're pretty deep in at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like a dense... Fantastic cultural history and then all of a sudden we're like in your apartment in San Francisco and you're 24 and it's very personal Mm -hmm. That that is among the most personal stories I've ever read in the New York Times Mm -hmm. maybe the most personal Mm -hmm. and when I read it I found myself immediately kind of wondering whether that experience or whatever that experience represents for you personally. It's what had driven the urge to write the story, like mm. did that come first or did Ted Two come first?
3: I don't know. I think Ted Two probably came first because my inclination is to not is not to write about myself in that way, because I'm always that's thinking,
1: everyone's inclination. <laughs> well, wait,
3: right. um, but I like writing about myself. I do. I, I love writing about myself in the context of cultural experiences. Uh-huh. I mean, when I reviewed the movie the first time, I did sort of talk about how my feelings were hurt by this movie. It wasn't just that it was bad. It was that, like, this movie kind of broke my heart because it represented a new frontier of moviegoing that I had never had before. And so I never forgot it, Hmm. and I never... I have a little bit of Seth MacFarlane PTSD. Um, You know, I think... Because I do think he's... I hope writing this gave you some closure on that. Maybe. Maybe, but I'll never, maybe I'll never have that closure because, and I and I don't mean, I don't, I don't make this analogy lightly. It's not entirely what this is, but it is like a guy comes in, he like feels you up, he calls you the N word a couple of times, then he just walks away. Like, I'm never going to forget. I had a version of an experience like that. And have you ever met Seth MacFarlane? No, never met him. I wonder what you'd say to him if you did. I think about that. I do think about that. Because I also. Because he's read it. Has he? I mean, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I bet he has. I don't know. I can't say that. When you said that, I was like, my heart just did it like a. <laughs> well, that's what I Yeah, <laughs> That's kind of what I was, um, what I was wondering just now. It's just kind of like, I wonder what Seth McFarlane's
1: doing. Like, people, some people are emailing Seth McFarlane the link to your story and just being like, eesh. Sorry, dude. <laughs> not that it's not deserved. No. I just I, wonder what you'd say to him.
3: Uh That's a great question cuz I haven't found an answer yet. But you know, I've been a I've been a I've been a critic now for my entire adult life. And the only criterion I have for whether or not to say something is uh, in terms of of the of the person who made the work under consideration or people associated with it could i comfortably survive running into you someplace could i defend what i said or 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 wrote if i ran into you somewhere and that is if i can't imagine doing that then i shouldn't write it in his case I mean, I don't know how the conversation starts, but I know I'm at least four or five moves ahead of wherever it's starting. Yeah. Which is like, you hurt my feelings. That's it. You made something that hurt me. And like, I kind of get a little bit emotional thinking about that because I don't want to make this all, like this piece is not about Seth MacFarlane um, in in the grand scheme of things, right? It's about a system and a culture that propagates these ideas and he I don't think he's innocent of having them I think what he's guilty of is weaponizing them and i so in talking to him and people like him all i can really say is the thing that i just said to you which is that you hurt my feelings um but i mean i've run into people whose work i've written about and by and large, they've been really cool about it. You know, somebody that who I mentioned in the piece that I am sort of eager but also nervous to run into is like a person like Quentin Tarantino, who is one of my favorite filmmakers, period. But I'm not stupid. Like I know what his problems are as a as director.
1: Right. And in the piece you spend a pretty good amount of time talking through that scene in Hateful Eight.
3: Yeah. This, there's a scene where Samuel L. Jackson tells a story about a time that he may have made someone give him a blowjob in order to keep the person warm. Um, and, you know, Tarantino knows what he's doing in, in having that story be the literal fulcrum of the film, right? Like, part one is, is this one thing. This incident happens and we go basically to part two. He knows what he's doing when he evokes this, when he invokes this history, And he knows that it's loaded. I mean, he knows everything about what he's doing. He's not clueless, but his entire education. I would say that Seth MacFarlane, who who is from New England, this is why I can't say he's innocent of this of this belief. But I also think that it is just part of the cultural atmosphere of some aspects of certain cities in America. And there are places in Boston where you really can encounter people who have such limited exposure to black people that to be around a black person is this freeing, like you just, you don't know what not to say, right? And so people will just say things to you because it's like, oh, I I wonder what will happen if I say this. It's not racist to me, but like. Yeah, your skin is so dark. Like, or like, man, I wasn't, like, your dick really is big. You know, I mean, it's racist, but it's not, it's, there's a kind of exploratory racism, right? There's not racism designed to make you feel inferior. It is the racism of surprise, of discovery. Right. Like, black people do it too. Like, it's, black people have versions of, can I touch your hair? You know, we just, we just know, <laughs> don't. we just don't do it, right? <laughs> and I think that like discovering some it's a very childlike thing. Like you, in Boston, my experience with things like that had everything to do with lack of proximity, lack of familiarity, and like real wonder. Like, like there's real wonder about what it must be like to be a black person. And,
1: and it's almost like Seth MacFarlane
3: hasn't ever met a person. He has never met a black person, yeah. right? Like, black people are these, they're, like, on TV. They're, like, I mean, if you, if you watch the shows and you see how black people function on the shows, it's a very sort of popular culture-oriented idea of black people. But the thing about Ted, too, is that's not true in that movie. <laughs> like, this is, these are, like, actual black problems. And, like, actual black, like, American American myths. Yeah. It's not like, like any of his other shows.
1: I want to slow you down for a second. Yes. You, you just did this thing. You and I have been working on this uh, project together. Yes. A podcast for you. Yes.
3: One of the highlights of my week.
1: And I've been seeing you do this thing that you just did uh, for was that, it, too. Was it a pivot? No. It was just, like, <laughs> you just did all of this thinking in real time about topic that I can't imagine you expected we would talk about and that's like uh, one of your uh, amazing superpowers is your ability to just think in so fast in real time Uh, and I can see you doing that on the page too and that's why I keep coming back to these personal stories that are in this essay you just wrote. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you didn't need them, Mm-mm. and and I want to know why you put them in.
3: I, well, because okay, now I have I have a really concise answer for you. I think it's just important to demonstrate that there is a real life corollary to all this cultural stuff, right? That okay, it's fine to uh, pinpoint and unpack racism that happens in all of the stuff we consume which to be honest to you really is like surprising to people like I've never thought about the fact that I don't know I mean I I did not find tattoo racist you know it would not have occurred to me that that, that a joke like that was at the expense of of black men
1: so the reason to have that story in there is for people to understand why you left that theater feeling badly
3: yeah I mean the risk that I think I'm taking is not is not really in telling those stories it's in a hoping that in sharing them it will amplify all of the sort of historical and popular culture things because the piece actually contains a number of like historical tragedies that have occurred at the expense of black people too.
1: both both uh, real life and on screen
3: yes and I think that it was important to find a way to draw a line that connects me to all of these things Um, that you know I'm a I'm as much a consumer of these movies and 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 these histories and these these really really horrifying and traumatic stories sometimes because they've been told to me like as cautionary anecdotes and sometimes because, you know, I'm a curious person and I read a lot. How much of that is for the reader and how much of that is for you? I can tell you that – oh, I don't know. That's actually a fair and good question. I was going to say none of it, but that would – that's not true. I think that the woman – okay, so this piece began – as a lark, right? It actually began as a funny thing I was just going to do at the end of the year, writing about all the penises I've seen. And the punchline was going to be that none of them was black. And it was only going to be like a thousand words or maybe maybe not even a thousand words. It's just going to be at the end of the year in the magazine for reasons I don't really know anything about. And uh, the woman who I, I, who's my friend, Sasha Weiss, um, wasn't satisfied that... She's the kind of person who wants to know why you feel the way you feel and like why you think this is something you want to write and she said if you can come up with an answer for that I'm sure the answer might be personal and you might want to pursue it so I started thinking about that and then I saw Hateful Eight and I was I, I immediately connected Hateful Eight to Seth MacFarlane that was that was automatic you have these two very sort of polar opposite experiences around the same object and the same myth. Um, and I just, I just really wanted to think about like, I, I was like, I'm like, I'm a I mean, I'm the owner of a black dick and I'm watching all these people talk about my dick and none of those people are black. Do you know what I mean? Th- here are more people saying things about my penis without understanding that it's a problem for me, and also, oh, I'm sorry, it's not true, right? It just isn't true. And Tarantino knows that it's not true. The problem is that he can't resist being like the flamboyant showman he is around black dicks because he didn't go to school school. He went to exploitation school. And so he learned a whole way of dealing with black male sexuality that is black based but should only be black controlled at the same time mm-hmm. you know and like it just is a different thing for a Tarantino and listen lots of white guys help make blasploitation movies it's not like it's I mean this is sort of what's fun about them right there are these sort of collaborations in stereotypical lugubriousness right like it's a it's like an integrated effort to sort of get these myths turned into comedy and drama and action. Um, but it's also 2016 and I just feel like there are other things he could... Like, this is a guy who was also marching with the Black Lives Matter guys mm-hmm. like at the same time, like right before his movie came out. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. He's obviously enlightened in some ways and unenlightened in others and I like... I actually like him trying to figure out how primitive he wants to be from movie to movie. I just did not appreciate, given the state of mind I was in, that this was happening around my dick.
1: Okay. I want to point out again Mm -hmm. that, like, I asked you a question about yourself, and you talked about Tarantino for a long time.
3: (laughs) Right, but I I think that – I don't know what the – I'm just I don't have a very satisfying way of, of of explaining why I thought it was necessary to do that like to incorporate myself into this piece I really felt it was necessary once Sasha made me think about once she made me think about why this mattered to me and why it was so upsetting once she made me think about that I knew exactly why mm-hmm. I just had to pick the right race the right racist sex story to put in the story I could have given you. I can think off the top of my head of four others.
1: Let me put this a different way to you. Yeah. You haven't looked at the reaction to this story very much. No. Haven't checked your work email. No. You haven't looked at Twitter. No. uh, Which is uh,
3: fascinating to me unto itself. Um, Because I didn't do it for that, though. I really didn't. I mean, I guess maybe we can talk about why I did it, because I I don't really have a neat immediate answer for that either. But I I did not do it for the reaction, for, like, the the, the dopamine.
1: you You didn't do it for the shine.
3: Mm -mm. no not
1: doing it for the shine and not even like uh, engaging with the shine different ideas
3: I will say thank you I'm working on another story right now I will say thank you to all of the people who have been really nice to me and Jenna Wortham who we work with who should be sitting next to me right now uh sent me a note last night she texted me and said listen I know that you sincerely don't want to get into the fray on like how nice people are being to you about this piece but this never happens, and you really should enjoy it. Like, and I, she said something like the entire internet is happy that you wrote this. Yeah. And you should go in there and dip your toe in that. Well, and I will. I, I mean, <laughs> but, I
1: applaud you for not needing to dive into the dopamine pool. The thing I was just going to give you a little preview of when you do a thing that, a word that I've seen more than any other associated with this thing that you wrote it's fearless that is like that is the way that people are describing it that's the way your boss described it mm-hmm. fearless
0: mm-hmm.
1: and when I read that to me that is about putting yourself in there
3: hmm hmm
1: yeah did you have fear about that was it scary to write about your dick in the New York Times
3: no my only fear and I might start crying when I say this and I don't want to because because it means my therapy is not working <laughs> um, but there is one person who is really special to me who knows my dick very well and did not treat it that way and would be unsurprised given this is a guy I was in a relationship with for four and a half years. I did think about how it would make him feel to read a story like this and the way it's structured he wouldn't know that it was coming until he was there Um, I did think about and you know I haven't spoken to him in a while and I miss him and I think about him all the time and you know all this other stuff that is not worth getting into but he was the one person that gave me pause about whether or not to do it and then I thought it's not about him it's not about him it's really not about him and he would understand he would under, if we were together, he would have encouraged me to write this piece
1: because of how it would have made him feel.
3: Um believe it or not, like I really do think that that your body is your body and y- the pleasure of of human interaction and and one of the pleasures of intimacy is choosing wh- who you're sharing your body with and who you're sharing your experience with and who you, who you want to give pleasure to and who you want to receive it from. And I think he and I really f- came from the same philosophical place on that. I don't like receiving pictures of people's penises. I don't want anybody knowing what mine looks like when it's unattached to my body. And the only way you're ever going to experience that is by having sex with me. Um, Or seeing me at the gym, but it's a different thing. Um, It's just very special to me. And I felt like, in a weird way, I wasn't writing about sex. I was writing about racism. And the only way for people to understand how racism works is to be naked about it. And... I just don't know. Like, if I had read this story and the writer hadn't gone into his own sort of personal relationship with these subjects, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. But if I had read a story that did that, I would have said, oh, my God, of course, of course, of course. There's like a direct line from, like, Birth of a Nation to Wesley Morris's Bedroom, right? (laughs) Or to like any black man in America's bedroom, especially if you're a black man who can have sex with white people or is interested in having sex with white people or has no black people to have sex with and has to have sex with white people. Do you know what I mean? Like if there's no way that some aspect of of some version of this doesn't touch you, even if it's not as explicit as what happened to me. So what you're
1: saying, just so I, I can wrap my head around it. Is when I thought about it, and when I thought about talking to you about it, what I was thinking about was however many millions of people are going to read this article, mm-hmm. and what I hear you saying is you didn't really think about exposing yourself to those millions of people. You were thinking about one person.
3: Hmm. Yeah. And not enough to stop me from doing it either. I just feel like I don't know. I you. Th- Okay, this is something you can obviously understand. You read a lot. If you think about all the things that you read, like essays for instance, or even novels, it just means it means a little bit more when you feel like the person is is sharing something with you that isn't just their intellect or their ability to sort of connect disparate strands of culture in my case. It's kind of writing about something about yourself or your experience that is resonant. It's that you have the potential to give people a mirror in a way. And if it's not a mirror, it's a window. It's one of those two things. You have the ability to give them something to look at or look through. There's another part of it too, I think,
1: which is... um instead of starting at the beginning, your piece ends at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And part of what I hear you saying about McFarland and Tarantino and yourself and everyone, basically, is we don't think about it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Don't face it. No. And so many times our most base immature assumptions about sex, about sexuality, about black penises, Mm -hmm. they haven't mature, they haven't been faced, They haven't been dealt with. We think about them like kids. Think about them. Yeah. I'm going to read something to you now. Uh Uh-oh. When I was nine or 10, I spent the summer at a camp at my school- (laughs) One day after swimming, I was showering, zoned out, but dialed in. I snapped out of it when I heard two older boys talking. Yo, he's looking at your dick. What's going on, man? What are you doing? They were talking to me. One of them was lean, very fit, a shade darker than I am, and incredibly enough, named David. His eyes were small but bright, and I had been looking at his penis. I didn't know what to say, so I told the truth. Yours is so much handsomer than mine. They almost fell over laughing. The wonder with which I said it was probably funny. You a faggot, David said. I stayed a faggot for the rest of my school life. The only penises I'd ever seen at that point were as black as David's, but I noticed his. He was twelve or thirteen and more developed. Admiring it got me cast out of our little Eden, but only because that's how boys are. We didn't know about sexual myths or racial threats, about the taboos that we would discover are our particular birthright. I didn't anyway. Not yet. I just saw a penis and it was beautiful.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That is a true story. I remember that story. I think about that story every time I take a public shower. Anytime I get in a shower at the gym, I think about that story. Anytime I'm taking off my clothes at the gym in the gym locker room, I, take, I think about that story. That was the first time I was I was aware of. I don't know that your dick isn't just like this thing that's on your body. It like has it means all this shit. Um. And that didn't come from white people. That just came from, like, men. Um, the race part started to become an issue when when you're older. But at that point, I mean, it really was like, I mean, I used the word Eden, but it really was like, like ev- I was really innocent up until that moment. Um, and then I was just really careful about, my relationship to other people's bodies and, and, and their penises and my penis. But I don't know. I feel like that is a that is an experience that anybody can have. But I think that the version of it that's happening in popular culture is that a black dick will never have that kind of innocence. Mm-hmm. it'll rarely be, I mean, it can happen again once we're like a, like 300 years away from where we are now, maybe. But, um, I think we're still too close and all this stuff means too much for it to ever just be what it is, which is just a sack of flesh,
1: you know? Why is that where you ended
3: the story? Cause I think it was important for people to understand that it's just a dick and it can be really, really handsome. And the thing about David W. is, I don't know, I was very young, and this is all my memory now, but I remember him being really, really handsome. And I just had never seen in my life, I might even have said this too, like I've just, I had never seen somebody's penis be that perfect for their body. It just was perfect. Perfect I'd seen my dad naked a million times I'd seen other kids in the locker room naked a million times but for whatever reason he was the person who it was involuntary I just came out of my mouth um but you know I rem- I think about that story a lot because I think black men are beautiful and I think black men are great and I think that there's there's nothing. It's crazy for me to think that that thing I was looking at in the shower that day has all of this meaning attached to it, that it can never just be this beautiful thing that's attached to this dude. It's got to mean raping white women, propagating the plantation. It's this thing that people were like cutting off and feeding to people for nothing, for nothing. I mean, in some cases for like the accusation of rape and murder, but no court said that. And so it's this thing that just has, like, been invested with all this meaning. And we didn't do it. Black people didn't, like, you know, we didn't start the, like, swing in the dick. That was an act of defiance against what that dick had come to mean. You know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, this story is what should happen, right? Right. This is a good dick story in a, in a weird way. This is a normal, any kid can do what I did in that shower that day. But the idea that, like, I'm then going to become this, like, 13-year-old or this, like, you know, 38-year-old going to the movies and having to, like, figure out, like, why my dick is a problem in a way that is different from being called gay by some other dude for looking at his penis. is just crazy to me. This is something that does not happen to most people in this country.
1: After working on this piece, after thinking about it, you, you worked on the piece for a year.
3: Mhm.
1: Do you think any differently
3: about your dick? <laughs> no, but I am nervous that other people will. Do you know what I mean? I did think about that too. Like, I'm single. Like, am I <laughs> I'm probably going to be maybe I'll be single for life. Your dick has been in the New York Times. Right. Well, I've like some of the people who've written who, you know, from a while ago who who know about my penis. Have been like, I think it's fine. It's a delightful penis, (laughs) you know. I think I don't think differently about mine, but I always think about like if if I'm if I'm gonna hook up with a white person, what what could happen? You know, it's just it's just never when two men get when two black men get together. It's just not that's not what's going on. <laughs> it's just not a topic of conversation, just like it wouldn't be with two white dudes. You know, it could be, but like, it just wouldn't mean the same thing. Like, it's entirely possible for two white gay guys to get together and be like, you know, for one of them, they'd be like, uh, well, you know, I might need a bigger dick. It just doesn't mean that you don't, the white guy might no, have there's to not search, hundreds, search his soul. Right.
1: There's not hundreds of years right. of cultural history behind that problem.
3: Right. right. But that happening to me doesn't make me think there's anything wrong with my dick. It makes me think there's something wrong with that guy. You know, that's the difference. Um, I mean, I actually didn't feel bad about myself when that guy left my apartment that night. I was just like... I mean, I did, but not anatomically. I'm like, how does he get to do this, really, (laughs) is what I was thinking. Like, I thought, how does he know he's from Germany? Is this a thing in Germany, too? And, of course, I guess what I keep... I've been driving at this whole
1: time is, like... I kind of read the story as you just trying to figure out uh, really and as much depth as possible why the fuck that happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, sure. That is true. Yes. I mean, if you want me to say yes to that, I'll say yes because I agree with it. It's true. I wanted to try to figure that out. But I think I kind of knew why it had happened. But the things that I had never thought to do before were to connect the why to the into the the different events as a writing exercise to make the connection. Like, Mm -hmm. I guess I, I guess if we were at dinner and I told you that story and I was an adult and you were an adult and you were like, well, why do you think that happened? They're like, where do you think this comes from? I could sit there and tell you why I think that's true. But I think we'd also at that point be so far away from the inciting incident. um, You it'd be easy to just sort of go off into like, what's wrong with this country and i i didn't really want to do that i didn't really only want to do that i wanted it to be um i'm just I, i'm thinking about all the really good essays i've read in the last 10 20 years um and a lot of them have not the same structure as this but like they are there is an entwining of the personal and the historical or the personal and, and these sort of, like, political in, in some way. I mean, I just also wanted it to be fun to read. Um, and I didn't want it to be, I mean, depressing, fine, maybe it is. But, like, I wanted it to have a lot of different things happening emotionally, too, you know? I mean, I wanted it to feel a lot of different ways. Um, it worked. Okay, good thanks <laughs> I appreciate that I just I, there's a part of me that can't believe I, I wrote this <laughs> that's all I've been trying to ask you the whole fucking time <laughs> I can't believe you wrote it either but I'm so happy that you did yeah. but it's a crazy thing that you wrote it is a, I mean if you think about it yeah it is
1: this is kind of the whole thing about Wesley Morris that I don't understand yeah. is you <laughs> thought about everything else so much and then you didn't think about that Like, you think more than anyone I know and also didn't think about, like, that this would be a crazy thing to write.
3: No. Well, then I wouldn't write anything. I really wouldn't. Like, if I think about, like, working at The New York Times or, like, even working at Grantland, given the environment in which I was writing those stories... Or like working at the Boston Globe, which was like, you know, only my second real professional job and I was hired as a, as a film critic. If I think about what this stuff means, I wouldn't do it because it just it would mean too much. So it kind of has to it. It's not that it can't mean nothing, but not I just that. can't freight it with too much meaning. You know, I I'm, I'm at this point, I'm a, I'm a professional writer. Like you give me a keyboard, you give me a subject, I will type for you. And. I can think my way through the typing, but I never think about, I mean, yeah, as like a person who is now no longer associated with this story from a production standpoint, I can kind of take a step back and be like, (laughs) (laughs) This this is in the paper. This is in the paper. I can do that. But I can't do that while I'm writing it. Like, and, you know, I have to say the magazine was really good about this. And uh, Grantland, Louisa Thomas, and Dan Freeman were good about this. And Bill Simmons, too, except Bill would get really excited about something. And he'd be like, this is so good. This is going to be great. People are going to love this. But for the most part. Good Simmons impression. I can do a better one. That actually, I was halfway through and I was like, I can do better. Um, Bill would just get really excited. And then I would get a little bit nervous. Um, because Bill would have a note; he'd have like a save Wesley from himself note, just one, and it's all it was always it would always be the perfect one. But at the magazine, uh, Jake Silverstein and Jessica Lustig and, and Sasha Weiss and, and Nisu Abebe, who was great um, with the with some of the cutting that we did, um, nobody at any point was like, "This is crazy." This is nobody billed out on me, right? Nobody had a nobody had a bill moment of just like utter like excitement and enthusiasm. And it wasn't in, it wasn't until after like all the work was done. Everybody was great. I mean, also think about this. They put out a magazine every week. Like sometimes I'm in it and they just have to keep going to the next issue. They don't have time to be like patting me on the back or like telling me how good my stuff is. But they did that this time after it was done after it was done. And for all I know, I mean, this is how they treat all their writers. I'm no special. I'm no more special than anybody else. The magazine's having a really good year, whether it's like me or, I I mean, any number of the great stories that have been in the magazine this year. I think that like from the front of the book to, to the actual meat of the issue, I think that it's been a really good year for the magazine. And, you know, I'm just proud to be a part of it, but, um, yeah, there is a part of me now that I'm sitting here talking to you because also, you're my first real conversation about this. I've buried my head. I went to yoga with Jenna yesterday. I went and hung out with Sasha Weiss, who was like, who had a baby and couldn't be a part of the closing process on this story, but like, she's such a huge reason it exists. And then I did work at my house because I couldn't. I wanted to be productive yesterday, so I didn't. And I got my hair cut. You know, like. That's how I spent the publication day of the story. And I called my granny. That's the other thing I did. She doesn't know about the story. <laughs> <laughs> did you tell her about it? I'm going to send it to her. I'm not going to tell her over the phone. She'll be like, you did what now? <laughs> but I'm going to, I send her a batch of newspapers. Every you got to tell me what she says. I'll tell you what she says.
1: Okay, now we really got to go. I got to pick up my kid. Okay, bye. Wesley, thank you.
3: Thanks for having me, Max. This was great.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Piper. Our intern was Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Audible, Casper, Squarespace, and of course, our friends at MailChimp. And thanks very much to my friend Wesley Morris for coming in. You can read his piece at The Times and uh, listen to his podcast. He co-hosts it with Jenna Wortham. It's called Still Processing. You can listen to it wherever you are listening to this. We'll see you next
0: week.